0: Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, hopefully you do, to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18, as we are in our series entitled, Elijah, a Man Like Us. Today we're going to be looking at another aspect of Elijah's life, and I've entitled this message, Three Men in a Tragedy, because we are examining three men, not just Elijah today. Um, Elijah is a man like us, but we're going to encounter two other characters, Elijah, a man by the name of Obadiah, and then lastly King Ahab, which we've heard about previously. But today we're going to examine him in a different light and see them in the midst of this tragedy. Because we know that this tragedy came about because the nation of Israel had forsaken God, and God brought a famine or drought upon the land. And we find out a lot about our faith in the midst of tragedy, do we not? We find out what we really believe when the rubber meets the road. It's easy to believe and talk about God and and just say all of these great things about Him, but it's another thing to praise Him in the midst of the storm. It's easy when the weather's going well, but when we start to suffer, that's where we begin to find out what it is we truly do believe. I'm reminded of a man by the name of Chuck Templeton. I'm not sure if you're ever familiar with him. He was an evangelist with Billy Graham. Uh, during the Youth for Christ years. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Billy Graham, the great evangelist's life, but uh, he started off as working for a youth organization called Youth for Christ in the 1940s and 1950s. For those who are a little bit older, you are probably familiar with Youth for Christ during uh, World War II. It was this movement that exploded onto the scene. Uh, Different youth or or leaders uh, were doing these outreaches to youth in different cities and they started contacting one another and sensing that God was bringing revival among the nation's youth and he rose up certain leaders and put this they they put this loose organization into one formal framework entitled Youth for Christ with Billy Graham being its first paid evangelist at $75 a week and one other man came on staff his name was Chuck Templeton now Chuck Templeton and Billy were very similar They were both very gifted by the Lord. Chuck was Canadian. He was from Toronto. He had no formal education, but God was using him to be this great evangelist and pastor. And he ended up doing all of these different outreaches. I mean, he was pastoring, I believe, a 2,000 or 5,000 member church while he was still quite a young man. People were coming to Christ in droves. But the fact that he didn't have formal education bothered him. And he wanted to go to seminary. And he started questioning certain things. He went to a very liberal seminary. But he started questioning who God was in the middle of this, and he he eventually became an atheist, which is extremely sad and terrible. Matter of fact, his whole story uh, or a part of his story is is uh, chronicled in the book "The Case for Christ" by Lee Strobel, as he talks about how Lee Strobel, not Lee Strobel, but Chuck Templeton, went away from the faith. And Templeton says that the straw that broke the camel's back to me was when I saw a Life magazine cover. And on the cover was an African woman who was looking up to the heavens holding her dead baby because of a drought. And he thought to himself, God just could have sent rain. If He just would have sent rain, that woman's child would be okay. But because God didn't send rain, God is not good. And I can't believe in this God. Which is really sad because you see that when things were going well and the droves were coming to him, he, he was great. But when tragedy struck, he responded negatively and he blamed God for that. See, many of us, we do that when tragedy strikes because we think that God is in essence like a, a divine ATM genie. Where we put in obedience and continually expect to get back blessing. Now, while it is true that when we obey, we do get blessing, we have a wrong understanding of what blessing is. See, many of us today in our contemporary culture think that blessing means not suffering. That's what we think. We think that if we continue to obey God, I'm not going to suffer. I'm not going to experience pain. And we see this being propagated through different TV ministries On the TBN and the church channel, and and not everyone on there is bad. There are some very good teachers. But some of these teachers say, hey, if you're suffering, something's wrong. They say something's wrong, and I, I disagree. God uses suffering for crying out loud. He looked at our Savior, and He suffered. And if He didn't suffer, we don't have salvation. And 1 Peter says that we are to follow his example, that we are going to endure suffering. Paul says that again. Endure suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, Luke records that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So we enter these tribulations, we enter this suffering to understand who God is. And that shows the reality of our faith. And today we're going to see three men. We're going to see them and how they respond To this tragedy. And the question before us is we're watching this in the honesty of our hearts. Which one are we? And as we're going through this, I want us to ask ourselves that question. Which am I? Not what I want to be. Not what others think I should be. But which am I? So we're going to be going through this text. It's a long text. We're going to be going from verse 1 through verse 19. Uh, and it's our custom here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the reading, the honor of God's word. We'll be reading from verse 1 through verse 19. I'm in First Kings chapter 18. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land, to all the springs of water, and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord. Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I surely, I will surely show myself to him today. So Ahab, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you seeking to understand your word and how to apply it to our lives, that we may not sin against you and we might walk closer with you experience the joy of knowing you. Lord, be in our time today. Strip away any layers of unbelief that keep us from hearing your word, but may we apply it appropriately to our lives, that you might be glorified within us and in this church. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What I hope to do is go through each of these individuals piece by piece and say that we have the opportunity of following one of these three individuals at the end of this. The first one I'd like to look at is following, we might be following the faith of Elijah. That's our hope, is we might be following the faith of Elijah. Now, we've already talked about Elijah in length. We have seen how God had brought him to speak against the nation, that he was a prophet, that he was from the, the, the city of Tishbe. He was... Uh, Kind of a a backwoodsman, as it were, as he had garments that were just very primitive, even for his time. And he speaks out against the king of Israel. Now remember, the kingdom was divided during this period of time. The southern kingdom was called the nation of Judah. The northern kingdom was called the nation or the kingdom of Israel. Even though, altogether, they were still known as the nation of Israel. And he speaks out against him. And then no sooner does he speak out against him that God takes him away, which we've learned in, in past weeks, that he went to the brook Cherith where he was fed by the ravens. And then he was taken to a widow of Zarephath in the, in the pagan land, Jezebel's backyard, her, her home country, her homeland, where he was nourished by a widow. And uh, her, she had a little small son. As they received oil, uh, the oil of the jar didn't, wasn't ever exhausted, and the flour uh, was not ever spent and not only that he had seen God work in the midst of that seeing that happen and then also rising raising her son from the dead once he died now we see Elijah after three years God tells him go go present yourself to Ahab now Ahab has been trying to kill Elijah he wanted to exterminate him but Elijah doesn't care any any much for that he doesn't care for earthly kings and kingdoms all he cares about is the glory of God So we can be following the faith of Elijah, but what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means this. He listened to the word of the Lord. Look at verse 1 with me. Chapter 18. And after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Now, what's amazing to me is not only that he listened to the word of the Lord, but he listened to the word of the Lord after a lengthy period of time. We don't know how long it was, but he was patient in listening to God. Now, how many of us are patient when we're listening to God? We're not. In our culture today, if we can't have it instantaneously, if God doesn't fix it now, we think that God has forsaken us. We have to learn to be still and wait on the Lord, to hear the voice of the Lord. Even in these next several weeks, as we're preparing our hearts for Easter, as traditionally within the, the church calendar, people start to prepare themselves for this for holy week. We've talked a great deal about Advent in the past, but did you know that only two Gospels highlight the Advent of Christ, the birth of Christ. And they focus on them in very long, lengthy passages. But every Gospel focuses on the last week of Christ's life and His Passion and His crucifixion. And traditionally, people begin to prepare themselves by fasting, by denying themselves in the next several weeks. Why? Not so they can gain points in God, because none of that gains points in God. We know that the Pharisees fasted sometimes twice a week. And that gained them nothing in the sight of God. But it's to humble ourselves that we can see God anew and be reminded that He is our King. And what He did on our behalf. So we need to be thinking of that. Now, Elijah had waited several days or even, you know, we don't know how long the period of time it was before he last heard the word of the Lord. The, word, the Lord had told him to go to a widow, Zarephath, Some think A period of years had even passed. Uh, could have been two years, no one knows for sure. But he waited as the land dried up. The grass became brown. The, dry, the riverbeds became first just down to a trickle, and then to mud, and then cracked dirt. And as all that was happening, he still waited patiently, in the midst of this tragedy, to hear the word of the Lord. Now, how about you? How about us? Are you willing to hear the word of the Lord in the midst of a tragedy? Maybe you're single and you want to be married. Maybe that's a tragedy to you to be single, that you're, you're struggling to hear the voice of the Lord and you want to take God's will into, and make it your own will and then do whatever you want to do and then God cleans up the mess later. Maybe that's in your job or maybe that's, maybe that's in your family or in your marriage. We don't want to wait on the Lord. We want to take and do it ourselves. Do we not do that? Are we not guilty of that? God doesn't operate in our own timetable. And then we want to take it and do it ourselves and then we mess it up and then God's got to clean it up. God wants us to take time and follow the faith of Elijah by learning to listen to the word of the Lord and what the word of God says. Not running ahead of the will of God, but waiting and according to the word of God and seeing what God says. So we can follow the faith of Elijah by listening to the word of the Lord. And We can also see that he learned obedience. That's what it means, following the faith of Elijah, that he listened to the word of the Lord, but he learned obedience. He learned to go when God told him. He didn't spring ahead of what God had for him. He learned obedience. We see that happening time and time again in his life, where he, God says to him, go to the brook Cherith. I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. I don't believe anyone in the history of the, of the Bible. Up to this time, it had ravens feed them on a regular basis. Sometimes I wonder what he thought every day when they brought his food twice a day. And he was like, wow, this is so cool. I mean, can you imagine what he thought every single time? Because he obeyed the word of the Lord. And then after that happens, God says to him, go to the widow of Zarephath. I've commanded a widow there to feed you. He says, okay, I'm going into Jezebel's backyard. I'm going into a pagan land to a pagan widow And God's going to feed me through this lowest of low in society. But he learned to obey. Because see, sometimes the way that God operates, is, and not just sometimes, most of the time, it's completely different than the way that the world operates. Is it not? Because we are to walk by faith, not by sight. Walk according to the Word of God. God does things in His own way, in His own time. And we see that within the Word of God of God. Now this world has a way that it operates, and it desires us to function, how, what it desires us to value and uphold and do. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. Follow my way. We believe that we have to get ahead in our workplace, survival of the fittest. It's a very Darwinian concept in our workplaces. i got to work so hard and beat everybody else down. And God says, no, the first shall be last. <laughs> That's, people say, well, that seems great within the Bible, but how does that work within the workplace? It's in the hand of God. Do you trust in men or your own ability, or do you trust in the Lord? Here, Elijah is trusting entirely in the Lord. He learned to listen to the voice of God, the Word of God especially, and he learned obedience to go at God's command. Now, We've talked a lot about Elijah, but I'd like to look at this guy named Obadiah for a moment. Obadiah's name means one who serves Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is the ancient name of God. We're not even exactly sure how it's pronounced because there's no vowels even in the original spelling and Jews wouldn't even pronounce this name. But it's a homage. It means it's kind of the I am, the great I am. I am who I am. The self-description of God. But Obadiah is a follower of Yahweh. Now, he is a very enigmatic figure in Scripture. After studying him, after looking at his life, scholars are divided on this man, on whether he's good or whether he's bad. Some scholars say he is immensely good. Other scholars say that he is immensely bad. Now, I have to say that I've taken a middle ground in this because I believe that he is a man who has great fear. And there's two types of fear that he has. Obadiah fears God, but he also fears man. Now, I'd like us to look at that and break that down for a moment. Let's look at verse 3 together. And Ahab, King Ahab, the wicked King Ahab, called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now, Obadiah is working for King Ahab. He is working in his palace. He is like his chief assistant. And he is working in Ahab's palace. But then we have this. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. So we understand that he has a fear of God. He fears God and that's a good fear it's a reverent and awe fear it's, it's a very it's a a term that we use it's a very pregnant with meaning but it's a good understanding of reverence of honor carrying all of these connotations that god is who he says he is so we as we're looking at this we have to examine ourselves how are we following the fear of obadiah following the fear of obadiah he Feared God, because he says that right here in verse three. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave, and fed them with bread and water. We also understand later on in verse twelve, as Obadiah says, And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so, when I come and tell Ahab that he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. So, he has known the Lord from the time that he was young. Very young. We don't know how old he was. We don't know how he learned the fear of the Lord or who he learned it from. But that he did fear the Lord. So much that when Jezebel, who was a zealous Baal worshiper, she had issued a pogrom against the the Jewish prophets to exterminate them. It was was mass extermination. She was doing everything in her power to get rid of them. Now remember, Obadiah is working in the household, so he sees her Baalism up close and personal. He understands what she's doing. So he has, in essence, we could probably give Obadiah the last name Schindler. Because he is Obadiah Schindler, is what he's doing, very much like Oscar Schindler. As you are familiar in World War II, if you've seen the film, uh, it's very gruesome. It's not an easy film to watch. I don't recommend it for people, it just, it, it's for adults only. And it's, it's a, it, but it chronicles what happened to Jews during World War II. And it's just this humiliating, degrading film that makes one sick after seeing it but you see that oscar schindler he was a german industrialist who had these different factories and he employed these different jews in order to save them from the concentration camps in two different factories that he had during world war ii and he ends up saving almost 1200 jews now he himself wasn't jewish he himself was catholic but he he was also a nazi party member having joined the nazis in 1939, and he was even part of the German intelligence group, the Abwehr. So you see that he is a kind of a divided man, that we don't know what to do with him. He's working for the Nazis, yet he's saving Jews. And I think it's very similar to Obadiah. He is this figure that's going between two things. He's working for Ahab, and yet he is trying to save God's people. Now some people would undoubtedly say, well, there have been other believers throughout time that have worked in pagan governments, And that they were good individuals. How can you say that that Obadiah is divided? Well, we can look at characters such as Joseph or Nehemiah, Daniel. We can look at different figures such as this. But the difference between Obadiah and them is that they were put into those positions of government because of their godliness. See, there's a major difference there. Obadiah is having to be secretive. In his faith, working for Ahab, seeing the death warrants that are being issued. I'm sure it was a great conflict within his soul. So we see that he feared God, and we could see that in the two different ways I mentioned before. He was hiding the prophets, that was the first way, and he had a great concern for holiness. Now we understood how he hid the prophets, he cared about God, but how was he concerned for holiness? Well look at verse 9 with me, of chapter 18 and he said this is obadiah how have i sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of ahab to kill me as the lord your god lives there is no nation or kingdom where my lord is not sent to seek you and when they would say he is not here he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you so he says how have i sinned how have i sinned he was conscious of who what sin was that he could have had sin and god was bringing judgment so he's asking is it because of my sin that I am going to be brought before Ahab and he's going to kill me? Is it because of that why I am brought here today? So he has a concern for holiness. That he was hoping that he didn't offend God. So he was hiding the prophets. He had a concern for holiness. And it's interesting that he's even repeating what the widow of Zarephath, this pagan widow of Zarephath, had said in 1 Kings seventeen eighteen when she's, and it says... And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. See, both of them have a familiarity with sin. And it's interesting that when tragedy strikes, they ask themselves, Is this because of what I've done? Have you ever done that in your life? I've done that. Where something goes wrong and I go, What did I do? What did I do, God? Sometimes we suffer. We don't know, we don't know the reason why. Sometimes it is because of our sin is 1 Corinthians 11 makes very, very clear. But there are times where it could be because of a a cosmic battle going on, as with Job. But here, he says, is there a reason why? He's concerned for holiness. We can see that just from his question. But we also see that he not only feared God, but he feared man. He feared man. Now this is where he gets very hard to understand. In some way, and I'm sure that many here today can relate to this, that we fear God with our mouth, and then we go out and we, we fear man more. See, the scripture paints bold strokes, doesn't always draw lines neatly for us. We are forced to wrestle with figures and situations within scripture, and Obadiah is one of those that we have to wrestle with as we look at his life. We see that he is a person whose fears ahab so much that he is he doesn't even want to go to him to tell him about obadiah to tell him that that elijah was there he's very concerned why have you done this to me i don't want to go and talk to this guy what if god takes you away i mean he's even showing that he's doubting what god is saying through elijah maybe it might be some giant trick because his fear of man is playing on it and is shaping his understanding of who god is and it's something that we have to make sure that we avoid that we don't fear men more than we fear god We are a lot like Peter, who said, when Jesus told him, you're going to deny me. He says, no, I'm not going to deny you. Matter of fact, even if everybody else deserts you, I'm not going to deny you. I'm going to die for you. And it wasn't just several hours later that he denies Jesus three times. Not before potentates, not before kings, not before politicians or government officials, but before a lowly servant girl. How many of us are like that? Have you ever been in that situation where you've made bold claims about Jesus and then you've gone out the door and you've denied Him in some way? He's an individual that's very hard to understand. God does paint bold strokes with certain characters that we are forced to wrestle with. I think of King Saul and King Solomon. King Saul was the first king in Israel's history. And here's a man who starts off great. I mean he gets great victories of God. He, he prophesies before God. He's leading the nation in victory, but then he breaks faith with God. And God judges him by bringing about his death. He seeks a witch of Endor to consult a medium. What do we do with Saul? What are we to make of Saul? Even Solomon. Here's Solomon, the author of uh, parts of Psalms and the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. Here's this great King Solomon, who is known as the wisest king to have ever lived. But I guarantee that if he lived today, there were many in this room, we would label him a heretic. You know why? Because he deserts God he marries many foreign women, and he constructs foreign altars to milk him and different foreign pagan gods. How do we deal with this man? What do we say about him? How do we deal with this guy who walked so closely with God that God gave him supernatural wisdom that he would be the wisest man to ever have lived? And then he turns his back on God and constructs foreign pagan altars because of his foreign wives. These are characters that we are forced to deal with. We don't know how to, what do, we, what do we make of them? How do we deal? And God allows us to wrestle with these characters in the hope that we look at what they did and go the opposite way. That we may not break faith like Saul did. That we may not turn to pagan and foreign deities, false deities, when we get older in our life. We understand that a Christian walk is not a sprint, it's a marathon. We have to learn to walk with him in the fear of the Lord. But Obadiah fears man. We can see this in his employment. He's working for a pagan king. He worked in Ahab's palace. Why did he take a job working in the one who was against God? It's like working in Hitler's house. And yet trying to go against him at the same time. We can also see that in his excuses. Look at verse 7. Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face. This is before... When he's before Elijah, is it you, my Lord Elijah? And he answered him, "It is I. Go, tell your Lord, behold Elijah is here." And he said, "How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me?" We see he's making these excuses. What what's going on? Why would you do this to me? He's almost as if he is blaming God through Elijah. He makes these different excuses. We must learn that we don't aren't to make excuses. We must look more to the faith of Elijah, not the faith of Obadiah, and least of all to Ahab. Now we see that Elijah was faithful. We see that Obadiah was fearful, as it was a divided fear. He feared God, but he also feared man. And then we look lastly at Ahab, who is faithless. He's faithless. The faithlessness of Ahab. How was he faithless? Let's look at. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, and Ahab said to him, Is it you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, why was he faithless? First of all, he forsook the commandments of the Lord. That's it. He he was forsaking the commandments of God. Now, I've been doing a lot of study recently. I, I love ancient history. And I I just finished a book a few weeks ago uh, by Suetonius, which was an ancient Roman historian. And he was writing about the 12 Caesars uh, in ancient Rome, somewhere even during the time of Christ. And it gives you a better, I I would recommend uh, for some that are so inclined to read this, in, in that it does give you a better understanding of how bad the Caesars were and how the Christians continued to work and try to reach... I mean, everyone in the midst of such a pagan environment. I mean, these guys were bad. I, I mean, people talk about today how wicked it is. It's a little different today than it was in ancient Rome. People say America's gone godless. In some ways, it has. But yet, I have not seen any Christians put up on lampposts and lit a fire as torches, as it was in ancient Rome. And he chronicles these different Caesars, Suetonius does. And I have to say that these are some of the most wicked men in history that I've ever read about. I can't believe they were Caesars. They were rulers to me. They were pedophiles. They were violent, brutal. I mean, some would have people tortured in front of them as they ate their lunch. These were wicked individuals. And I look at them, and, then I, and I can't even begin to describe how bad they were to you. I can't even speak about how what they did uh, just, I It's not something you say in, in public. Sometimes in reading the book, he made you sick to see how bad they were. And yet, Peter could write, honor the emperor. It's amazing to me how he could say that in the midst of this. So I look at how bad these pagan kings were. And I look at, uh, I look at Ahab, and here he's the most wicked king in A- Israel's history. And I go, was he more wicked than these Caesars? And I realize... It's different because they weren't... I mean, yes, they were to follow the the Lord, but they didn't understand who God was. He knew the commandments of God and forsook them. I mean, it's one thing to not have the commandments and be wicked. It's a total other thing to know it and go against it. When you know the good you should be doing and don't do it, that's sin, as James says. When you know the commandments of God and you willingly turn against it, you... I fear for you, for anybody who does that. See, Ahab had been forsaking the commandments of God. He was faithless. He was the king of Israel. He knew better. And he intentionally rejects the God of Israel and goes with the Baals. And I can't believe how bad he became because of it. He was so faithless. Now we can also see his faithless, faithlessness not in just his forsaking of commands of God, but by his flinging accusations at others. Look at verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? He's saying to him, It's your fault we're in this mess. Now notice the difference between Ahab and Obadiah. Obadiah doesn't blame anybody, except maybe Elijah. It doesn't, but he doesn't blame him like troubler. He says, Have I sinned? Is it my fault? At least he's in a a place where he's like, is it my fault? Was it because of this? I mean, he's much better than Ahab, who doesn't take any responsibility. He lays it all at Elijah. And he says to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? You? It's because of you we're in this mess. You were the one that decreed this famine. It's because of you. Even after the rain had stopped, Even as the crops died, even as those around him died, he still blamed Elijah. That's why he issued a death warrant. He had people going around looking for him, trying to find him. He wanted to kill him. It was his fault we were in this mess. It's amazing to me how people are in sin and they blame everybody else for their sin. You ever done that? It's because of what she did to me or he did to me i've heard even spouses do that where a husband will say you know what i'm going to do to you right now it's because of what you've done you deserve this then he hits his wife you brought this on yourself it's hypocrisy it's not the way of god to take responsibility for our own sin see we choose sin now we I mean, we we because the scripture is very clear that God has given us a way out. When we are tempted, he's given us a way out. We can choose how we respond when temptation comes. But when it does come, say, oh, we give excuses and we blame others. It started in the garden, as Pastor Andrew reminded us last week. Where does Adam go? He's the responsible one. He shirks his responsibility. Instead of saying, I screwed up. No, God, it's your fault. You gave me the woman so he goes to the woman he says to her what happened? she goes it's not my fault it's that stupid serpent failing to take responsibility for their actions and that's what he does he casts blame on others do you cast blame on others for your sin? do you take personal responsibility for what you've done? it's a hard question we all must face Flinging accusations at others. But Elijah corrects it. He says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. It's time for a throwdown. It's a showdown. It's the OK Corral. It's, 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 it's time. It's enough. God will wait, and He's been patient. But after a while, He says, enough. And He's going to judge. He's going to judge. Now, Elijah places the blame squarely on those who were responsible. Ahab's house and those of his father. They were the ones who had turned their back on God. They were the ones that brought this upon themselves and led the nation astray. Ahab was faithless because he failed to take responsibility for his sin. And that's the last point that let her see here: failing to take responsibility when we want to blame everybody else, take responsibility for our sin, for our choices, for our actions. Did we do that? He didn't. He blamed other, everybody else. See, that's how sin works. We have to take responsibility for our actions. We don't want to, we must not shift the blame to God or to others saying, He made me do it or she made me do it or God made me this way. We have to take responsibility. Like David. David, who said, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He fully admits it. He confesses his sin. He said, It's against you that I sinned. I messed up. You're justified in judging me. Have we come to that? place yet in our lives where we are ready to take responsibility for our actions see he failed to take responsibility for his actions he shirked his responsibility he was the one that led the nation astray not anyone else david took responsibility for his sin time time again throughout scripture he didn't blame Bathsheba for his adultery he didn't say god why did you put her on the top of the roof to be bathing in front of me He didn't do that. He didn't blame anyone else when he made the census, which was wrong in the sight of God because he was trying to boast in his own numbers and what he accomplished rather than in the Lord. He said, And then God brought judgment against him and many were killed. And he says, what have they done? They're sheep. It was me that did it. He totally took responsibility for his actions. Now, as we look at these three men before us, I'd like to look and conclude with some guiding principles And I asked you a question at the beginning, and I want you to be honest. Who are you in God's opinion? Which one of these three? I've had to ask myself this question, and I'm not sure if I always like the answer. Who are you in God's opinion? Not in the opinion of anybody else. Not in the opinion of what you think you want to be, but what are you really? Are you faithful, like Elijah was? Are you fearful? You're double-minded in essence. You are compromised in some way. You've compromised parts of your integrity and your witness. You're walking that line, trying to keep one foot in the world and one foot on God, but it's like a boat pulling away from the dock. You can't continue to stay there forever. You're going to have to choose one way or the other. So are are you faithful? Are you fearful? Or are you like, Ahab, who was faithless. Be honest. If you are faithful like Elijah, and this is what I'd like to leave with you today, if you are faithful like Elijah, let me encourage you to remain steadfast in obedience today as you have in the past. Continue to be a witness, to continue to speak out, continue to be bold. Continue to adhere, to follow the Lord, to listen to Him, to continue seeking Him. Keep on keeping on. If you're fearful like Obadiah, renounce areas of compromise and begin to live consistently and publicly for Christ, no matter what the cost. Stop being a subversive believer. Stop being a secret believer. Be bold. Be bold in your witness. Fear God more than you fear men. And lastly, If you are faithless like Ahab, repent of your sins and stop blaming others. Take responsibility. Return to God before it's too late. That's part of confession. That's part of the Christian life. It involves confession and repentance. Repentance says that I can't do it on my own. I have messed up so bad. God, I'm turning back to you. And it's not just arriving at the journey. It's the actual taking the steps necessary to get to Christ. It's walking to Him covering that distance between the two of you, running to Him, not only confessing our sins, but turning away from it. So those are the questions that I have for us today. Are you faithful, fearful, or faithless? And how... Can you be faithful? I hope we all try to follow the Lord like Elijah did, that we try to continue to draw closer to God that we might hear His voice. As I mentioned earlier, we are entering into this period of time right before Passion Week in the next uh, several days. This Wednesday traditionally marks the beginning of this period of time where the church history has looked at as a time of humiliation. Now, the Scripture doesn't command any of this but it has been done within early church history where Christians have just used this time to draw closer to God, to deny themselves, to, to spend more time in focused prayer, to spend more time in reading the Word. And we have a, a little booklet that I would encourage you to check out. It's, it's called Seeking God for the City, and it's looking at the 40 days to Palm Sunday. We'll have these available. Are they in the back? And you can pick one up. Uh, it does cost a few dollars. I'm not exactly sure how much it costs, uh, $3. And you can take you and your family through this. It's to help, help you seek the Lord in prayer. Uh, to spend some focused time in prayer, not just for yourself, but for the city. Because we're not only to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but to love our neighbor as ourselves. To be concerned about other people, to see that they might be one to the lost. And I pray that in the next several days that you might take this as an opportunity to seek the face of the Lord, to grow in your walk with Him. And I would even encourage you to think and contemplate fasting in the next several weeks. Fasting scares me to death. It's not fun. I don't know if you've ever fasted before. It's, it's long. It's drawn out. It doesn't feel very spiritual. Uh, but it is. It's, it, and our Lord talks about fasting. Remember, it's not a means of gaining points with God. It does not gain points of God. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But it is a means of drawing near. And even the Lord says, when the Son of Man is taken away, then they will fast. He does expect us to fast. There are many different types of fast. We would, some, we would encourage some families to cont- contemplate Fasting from media. Turn off the television. Just think about that. Or maybe fast from one meal. There are total fasts where people will fast uh, completely and utterly from food. Some have done that. I've known some people that have done 40 days entirely. I've known some that have just made it one meal a week. Some have have given up something such as something that they love, uh, coffee. Imagine giving up your morning coffee. If it's a terrible thing to, to think about that, I'd, th- I'd ask you to consider fasting. Hopefully it doesn't control us that much because it's, it's showing, uh, showing our bodies and reminding us that we are not sustained by just bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. As we begin to contemplate what our Lord has done for us and how we might walk closer with Him during this time. So I would encourage you to think about those things. Uh, to prayerfully enter into those things. Don't do so as a command, but do so just rejoicing that we know that our Lord has saved us because of His love and His mercy that He has poured out upon us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, as exemplified with on the cross of Christ. I'd like to close our message time with a word of prayer. And as our, our, one of our elders, Roger McBroom, is going to come up and, and lead us in a time of communion as we remember uh, the Lord, our Lord being crucified and uh, what it costs for us to have redemption. Uh, But let's close this time with a word of prayer and ask God to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper together, shall we? Our Father and our God, you alone are God. Lord, we thank you for the example of Elijah. We thank you that he was such a prophet, but he was a man that was just like us, that he was able to speak out against the cultural compromise that he saw going on around him that he was a bold witness to Christ, that he listened to the word of the Lord and testified before You. Lord, may we follow His example. May we be faithful men and women. Lord, may we not be faithless like Ahab. May we not be more fearful of man than we are of God. May we not be compromised in that way. But may we be holy and totally devoted to You. Bring to the surface any sin that is keeping us from walking with You. Lord, if it be the fear of man, Bring it to our attention and give us the strength and courage to forsake that and continually hold You in higher regard than we do the fear of man. And Lord, may You be glorified in our midst. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who does not yet know You, has not placed their trust in You, I pray that they might call out to You because we know according to the truth and the promise within Scripture that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, may all who are here repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ and what you did on Calvary Street for each one of us, that you paid the price for our sin, what was due us, and that you rose again for our justification, that we might walk in newness of life, looking forward to the day where you come again, when you will bring all creation into submission and you will show yourself to be the rightful and true king of the world. Lord, we are grateful. We look to you in great awe and we adore you for who you are and what you've done. We pray your blessing upon each individual here and in our church and on this communion time now. In Jesus' name, amen.